My name is Herb Montgomery, and I'm the director of Renewed Heart Ministries. We are a not-for-profit group that is passionate about rediscovering, following, and helping others rediscover the teachings and sayings of the historical Jesus of Nazareth. We believe that these teachings have an intrinsic value in informing the work of nonviolently confronting, liberating, and transforming our world into a safe, more just, more compassionate home for us all. If you would like to support the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, I'll tell you how you can do so at the end of this podcast. For now, we simply want to thank you for listening. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to this week's weekly podcast. This is episode 185 of our Jesus for Everyone podcast. Our title this week is Knowing the Father Through the Son. Uh, I'm actually in Salt Lake City still this week. We're in a week-long series, so again, the recording may sound a little different. We're in a different recording environment. Uh, Our feature text this week is Sayings Gospel Q 1021, Everything has been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and whomever the Son chooses to reveal Him. Our companion texts are Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Luke ten twenty two. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And Gospel of Thomas 61, verse 3, Jesus said to her, I am he who comes from the one who is always the same, and I was given some of that which is my Father's. Now let's talk about first this week, Jesus' substantiation of of the God of the vulnerable. Last week we discussed how the God Jesus called his followers to envision was committed to the most vulnerable ones in society. The very next saying, and that's this week's saying, shows Jesus' appeal to, to a direct revelation to substantiate his claim that God was a God for the vulnerable and not just the strong or the well-placed. And consider the possible responses to Jesus' saying from last week uh, that God had actually revealed truth to those on the margins of their society rather than to their religious sages and their their learned leaders. Uh, Pairing that saying with this week's uh, implies that Jesus' community attributed this truth uh, to, to direct revelation. How did Jesus know that God was the revealer of truth for the vulnerable, uh, that this God belonged to the marginalized and excluded in his own society? Uh, this knowledge had been given him directly from God, and he was choosing to reveal it to his followers. And, and while this defense of direct and, and unique revelation it may have worked to establish credibility for the Jesus community in their society in the first century, it leaves some really big questions untouched in our context today. In this saying, Jesus says that that what he knows was entrusted to him by his Father, and that he also chooses to reveal things uh, to the folks that he chooses to. So so that opens up questions like, how do we know uh, we're getting insights from God or Jesus? Um, are there other sources? Does direct revelation have to be 
validated by the authorities. In Jesus' case, it wasn't at all, even though he appealed to uh, and and reinterpreted the prophets, it, it wasn't validated by the authorities of his time. And how can we discern healthy insight or revelation uh, from the destructive? These are all important questions for modern people who are worrying about whether they have solid interpretations or are self-deceiving. And some sectors of Christianity like to say that, that nothing the Holy Spirit reveals will contradict Scripture. And that's kind of not how it worked uh, for the first generation of Christians. Could it be that the only way to know whether or not you're on the right track is not a claim to direct revelation like the early church claimed for Jesus, but actually in following what Jesus is teaching in this section of the sayings, listening to the voices of the most vulnerable and how they are affected uh, by your revelation, uh, testing revelation by its fruit, so to speak. So Jesus's direct revelation Remember, it wasn't attested to by the status quo authorities, but, but, but this saying specifically was in the context of him saying also, we need to listen to the revelation God has given to the lowest sector of our society. There is a danger in claiming direct revelation and then just ending the discussion there. This is not a method, uh, nor is it a standard that's reproducible and that we can use ourselves, but we can lean into the actual truth Jesus is attesting, being listening to the most vulnerable, and hearing from their experiences whether or not our, our revelations or interpretations of sacred text produces good fruit. This is called listening for God in the othered, and it's a, a hermeneutical method of testing uh, by considering results. Let's talk for a moment about Jesus's use of the phrase, my father. I want to discuss Jesus is referring to God as his father because it's problematic. Um, there's a problematic nature to gendering the divinity um, or gendering God. Uh, There are a number of things we have to take into consideration. First, Jesus lived and he taught within two deeply patriarchal cultures, the Roman and the Jewish. We cannot escape the reality that Jesus and, and those that he ministered to moved about within a patriarchal world. And second, Jesus naming God as Father was less parental and more political. This was a a, a naming of God that had a historical context in Judaism. Referring to God as Father and having God referring to to someone as Son was a special relationship attributed to Judah's king and and Yahweh. In the Psalms, this title was applied to David, and it it was also extended to Solomon. And In Psalms 2, verse 7, it says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, and this is David speaking, You are my son, today I I have become your father. And uh, Psalms 89, 26, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my, sa- uh, the rock, my savior. In 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, we find these words about Solomon. When your day, he's speaking to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He, talking about Solomon, is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Matthew's gospel, a very Jewish version of the Jesus story, identifies Jesus with this kind of language. 
language. And it makes perfect sense. Matthew's gospel continually employs imagery of Jesus and and God as Father and Son. And and it's impossible to determine whether this unique rhetoric was original to Jesus or was created by the Jesus community who loved and followed him. But, but, But what is clear, it's that this rhetoric was part of the hope for the liberation and the restoration of Israel in the first century. And minimum, the followers of Jesus claim that Jesus is coming uh, mark the start of this restoration of the, of the kingdom. And Luke's Gentile community would have used this rhetoric as well, not to associate Jesus with a, a past Jewish leader so much, but for the purpose of contrast with a present Roman one. Uh, I wrote about this last December in Two Visions or Versions of Peace. It was part three of our three-part series for Christmas. And this language was also used in the Roman Empire to refer to Caesar's supposed divine ancestry. I'm going to read for you what I wrote back in December. It was Augustus Caesar who, during the time of Luke's birth narrative, was entitled divine, son of God, God from God, Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, Savior of the world. Here is why. Rome experienced several civil civil wars as a democratic republic and had regressed to a point of disintegration when Octavian, later called Augustus, became Rome's savior. Through Augustus, Rome transitioned from an imperial republic to an imperial monarchy. Augustus, the adopted son of Julius, was uh, was like his father, deified or regarded as God. He was given the title Augustus in Latin, one who is divine, and Sebastos in Greek, one who is to be worshipped. Temples were inscribed to him with the dedication, the autocrat Caesar, the son of God, the God to be worshipped. And as with all domination systems, the four imperial aspects produced a society where an elite at the top benefited from the subjugation of the many beneath them. Luke addresses all four of these aspects in his gospel. In response to Rome's military power, Luke presents the teachings of Jesus on nonviolence. In response to Rome's economic power, Luke presents Jesus' teaching on wealth redistribution. In response to Rome's political power, Luke presents Jesus, not Caesar, as liberator, redeemer, bringer of peace, Lord, and Savior of the world. And in response to Rome's theology of a ruler who was supposedly born to a divine human to divine human parents and so was named the Son of God, God from God to be worshipped, Luke presents Jesus and his subversive kingdom. Rome's theology was larger than Caesar, and it included the worship of deities such as Mars, the god of war, but it included the worship of Caesar as the incarnate representation of the divine. As theologian Adolf Gustav Deismann wrote, it is important for us to recognize the early establishment of political parallelism between the cult of Christ and the cult of Caesar in the application of the term Kyrios, or Lord. That's from his book on page 349. Knowing Augustus's birth narrative, is also beneficial to us. The story that was that on one night, sorry, the story that on the night of Augustus' conception, Augustus's father had a dream in which he saw the sun rising from Adius, his wife's womb. Caesar Augustus was the coming of the light to the world. Augustus was believed to be the son of God, fathered by Apollo, and Apollo in turn was the son of God, fathered by Zeus, the supreme god of the Roman and Greek pantheon. Here's a description from the second century CE of the divine conception of Augustus Caesar. It cites an Egyptian story about Augustus that dates to around 31 to 29 BCE. When Atia, Augustus's mother, had come in the middle of the night to the solemn service of Apollo, 
she had her little, uh, she had her little, her litter, sorry. She had her litter set down in the temple and fell asleep while the rest of the matrons also slept. On a sudden, uh, all of a sudden, a serpent glided up to her and shortly went away. When she awoke, she purified herself as if after the embrace of her husband. And at once there appeared on her body a mark in colors like a serpent. She could never get rid of it. So that Presently, she ceased ever to go to the public baths. In the tenth month after that, Augustus was born and therefore regarded as the son of Apollo. That's from Suetonius, the Twelve Caesars, page 94, paragraph 4. So Jesus' use of our Father or, or Father God or, or the community's use of Father God, for Matthew, it would have had a very Jewish context. For Luke, it would have had a very Roman uh, context. Um, and let's talk about Jesus' use of our Father for a second as well, because there's a little bit of a shift there. Gendering God as Father creates negative problems in human society in every age. But, but we also have to consider that even though that's problematic, there is a positive shift in Jesus' teaching. God as Father was no longer isolated as, as a, a privilege of the one king at the top of a hierarchical societal structure. Jesus stands, even within his own Jewish prophetic tradition, in affirming the communal nature of this title. The prophets had also shifted away from calling only the king the son of Yahweh, and they spoke of the entire nation as equal uh, claimants to the, the parentage of Yahweh. In Isaiah 63, 16, it says, But you are our father, our father, through Ab- though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, you, Lord, are our father, our redeemer from old uh, is your name. Isaiah 64, 8, Yet you, Lord, are our father. Uh, we are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. In Jeremiah 31, 9, They will come with weeping, they will pray, as I bring them back, I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path, and there will be there they will not stumble, because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. And then Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And Malachi 2.10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So when Jesus is, is using this phrase of our father, Um, It's very Jewish. He's standing in a prophetic Jewish tradition. And Jesus, when asked in Matthew to give instruction about prayer, like the prophets before him, he he taught his his followers to address God as our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's Matthew 6, uh, verse 9. So so Jesus' teaching... It affirmed within a deeply patriarchal society that being able to refer to God as a parent was not the privilege of an isolated hero or a king, but an egalitarian privilege that the entire community could enjoy. We're all children of Jesus' God. We're all siblings. And you can find that in Luke, a reference to this in Luke 19, verse 9. And we're all bearers of the image of God. And Luke also includes some evidence that Jesus used Maybe some feminine images for the the sacred divine. For for our time, um, some think it problematic that these images are domestic. Uh, But for Jesus to associate this imagery with God and his society would have been very provocative. In Luke 15, 8 through 10, talking about God, it says that God is, uh, uh, in trying to illustrate the divine, Jesus says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? 
And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angel, the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, um, it's, it's, there are scholars who do believe that this is problematic. Uh, because it's female imagery, but it's in a domestic setting. Um, But within a first century context, again, uh, not our day, but in the first century, this would have been very provocative. Jesus uh, is accessing portions of his own Jewish tradition and using these feminine images for God. And as as Garth Cosimo Baker Fletcher so aptly points out in his book, My Sister, My Brother, Womanist and Exodus, God Talk, within the Torah, God is likened to a mother eagle. It's in Deuteronomy 32, 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. And this imagery is both earthy and it's transcendent. It's nurturing and independent. It's strong and powerful, and and yet it's compassionate. The motherly love of the eagle as an image of the divine, I think it holds much promise specifically for women. And if you'd like to lean more uh, deeply into that and for some further discussion on that, I'll recommend the book, uh, My Sister, My Brother, Womanist and Exodus, God Talk. And you'll find the discussion on pages 49 through 51 and 64 through 65. So Jesus also, um, he uses mother uh, mother hen image as well. And and but Karen Baker Fletcher in the same book uh, points out uh, that this image reemphasizes uh, in patriarchal cultures uh, negative stereotypes of women as as old hens or or henpecking or or overprotectiveness and and I would strongly argue though that in the Jesus stories we do not see Jesus applying the mother hen imagery to God but to himself he states how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings in Matthew 23, 37. And for a man, in Jesus' context, to have embraced using mother hen language for himself, it could deeply affirm men as they strive to abandon harmful stereotypes of masculinity today and strive towards becoming more nurturing and tender as men, just as Jesus was. And we don't always remember that Jesus grew up with a mother who was likely a widow and for, for most of his adulthood. Jesus would have witnessed firsthand uh, the struggles that women in his society faced. And I think it's also telling that, that Luke includes a, a statement that women were supporting Jesus' ministry from their own means, and that's Luke 8, verse 3. And as the director of a nonprofit myself, I can definitely tell you that, that folks don't financially support you uh, unless they resonate with something that, that you're saying or, or, or doing. And in Jesus' teachings, these women must have seen something that liberated them or gave them a, a way to survive as well. So, so, so what we see this week is, is definitely, you can't mistake it, it's Jesus gendering God. But we must pair with his references to God as Father examples of him using female imagery for God as well. Jesus used imagery that affirmed patriarchal structures, sure, um, and those stereotypes. Uh, but, but he also used imagery that challenged 
patriarchal structures and stereotypes. He, he did both. Like the Jewish prophets before him, Jesus enlarged the image of the divine as a parent and, and saw the whole community as having the same equal relationship. And lastly, his reference to his father in this week's saying substantiates a relationship where through direct revelation, Yahweh had revealed that to him, uh, that Yahweh is a God who possesses a, a preferential option for the most vulnerable, not the sages and leaders in their society, but the most vulnerable. This could have been, again, deeply subversive in his time. We're considering all these things as we contemplate this week's saying and its possible application to our work today of, of survival and resistance and liberation and transformation and restoration. And Jesus claimed that God, and in patriarchal terms of his own place and time, is a father to the fatherless. We could add also that God is a mother to the motherless. God uh, parents the most vulnerable among us. And Jesus calls us to imagine this God ourselves and to begin centering the most vulnerable as we seek to understand societal truths from their experiences. And I'll place both last week's and this week's saying together for your meditation as we close. The, the title that the Q scholars have given this section is Knowing the Father Through the Son. Uh, what does the Son reveal to us about the Father? Uh, the, this revelation is that God is the God of the most vulnerable among us. At that time, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you hid these things from the sages and the learned and disclosed them to children. Yes, Father, for that is what has pleased you to do. Everything has been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and to whomever the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, that's saying's Gospel Q, 10, 21, and 22. Heart group application uh, this week, Contemplate on your own and and as a group uh, the implications of affirming God as both mother and father. According to Genesis 1, God made us all, both male and female, in God's image. How does this shift to a more inclusive image of God challenge the boundaries that our culture has created? What does God as both mother and father say to you about the value of men and the value of women? And for number two, for the next seven days, try something new in your prayer time. If you address the divine in your prayers, simply try using the phrase mother, father, God. Do both. See what this does inside of you? What of your own prejudices and stereotypes does it push against? And and what might it begin to, to free you from? And then number three, lastly, I want you to journal your experiments with praying like this and, and share what positive and negative things you discover with your heart group uh, next week for discussion. Thank you again for, for checking in with us this week. Wherever you are, keep living in love till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Thank you once again for listening. Everything we do here at Renewed Heart Ministries, even our, our many educational events that we do in various venues, is for free. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-time gift or become one of our monthly contributors by going to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and clicking on the Donate tab on the top right. Or you can mail your contribution to Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And make sure you also sign up for our free resources and remember 
remember, every little bit helps. And, and as always, anything that we receive over and above our annual budget, we happily give away to other not-for-profits who are, are making both systemic and personal differences and significant differences in the lives of those who are not presently benefited by the status quo. And to those of you who are already supporting the work of Renewed Heart Ministries, thank you so much. Your generous support makes it possible for us to exist and to continue being a presence for positive change in our world. So with all of our hearts, thank you. Together, we are making a difference till the only world that remains is a world where only love reigns. 